Welcome to this week's podcast from Oceans Church in Orange County. We hope you're encouraged by this week's message. For more information, please visit our website at theoceanschurch.com. We're in a series called The Promised Land. Now, if it's your first week, totally fine. I'll give you a little 60-second Netflix, what happened last season. Is that all right? And uh, 30 seconds, essentially, we talked about how God's promised land is the place he wants you to live in that's full of his purpose. That God does not make accidents or mistakes. And even if your parents weren't planning on you, God was. And God wants every one of his kids to live a fruitful life. John 15 says that if you're you're bearing fruit, I'm going to prune you so you can bear much fruit. He said, by your fruitfulness, my Father is glorified. So God's desire is not just duration of life, but he wants life in the duration. And so today, we are going to have a good time and uh, to, to overview. We talked about week one in the book of Joshua, where we've been parked the last few weeks. I've done three messages. The first week, we talked about what the promised land is, and we talked about what it was. Second week, we talked about who the promised land is for. We talked about Rahab, a woman of the night, and if she can make it into the promised land, come on, anybody can. And week three, we talked about how you get into God's promised land. We talked about stacking stones, which is going back and remembering what God has done. And oftentimes, looking at what God has done gives you faith to believe for what God will do. Yeah. Today, I want to talk to you in our, in our fourth message, maybe our final message, depending on what God has this week in this series. I want to talk to you about how to stay, how to stay in God's place, how to stay in God's promised land. I don't know if you noticed this before, but there's like a sweet spot with a lot of things in life. Like avocados. Hard as a rock, hard as a rock, hard as a rock for six years. For seven minutes, they're ripe. And then they turn into some sort of bacteria. Sweet spot, right? You, 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 if you watch baseball, you know some of your baseball fans in here, when you watch baseball, there's a sweet spot the pitcher's aiming for, just kind of a perfect spot. You know, as a batter, sweet spot, best part of the bat, there's a sweet spot on the bat that actually yields the greatest results of, of impact. And I believe that you look at almost any, any field of life, there are sweet spots. And I want to talk to you today about, this, about staying in God's sweet spot. Is that all right? And here's the good news, like, Mark, I've never been to church before. I don't even know what a sweet spot, I don't even know what God has promised what. Um, if that's you, I want you to know that not only do I believe there is a place, but I believe that God can get you in that place today. It's a bold statement. Uh, again, to summarize our series, uh, Joshua was maybe one of the greatest humans to ever live outside of Jesus. He had one of the most, I don't know, one of the cleanest job resumes out of anyone in the Bible. Never really had any meltdowns, moral failures. The guy served God pretty blamelessly. He led Israel into the most undefeated seven years in the history of, of the nation. They saw 31 kingdoms fall. Seven nations were, were, were bowed down to them. God gave them the greatest real estate in the known world that connects Africa to Asia, or Africa to Europe, along the Mediterranean coast with the most fertile, rich, probably the nicest land of that day. It was the Orange County, come on, of the ancient world. And God would drive out the enemies that he actually gave mercy on. He would finally drive them out. And we're going to pick up reading today about after they crossed the Jordan River, after God gave them a victory in Jericho, after God restored a prostitute named Rahab, and after God actually redeemed a situation in Ai, 
there is a story that we read about here to kind of give you the backstory that he actually, uh, the children of Israel come in and they meet a people group called the Gibeonites. Gibeonites are pretty smart. They're, they're giants, they're soldiers, really strong. But they have this epiphany that if we don't find a way to, to make an alliance with Israel, we're done. And so we're going to pick up reading in chapter 9, and I'm going to read 11 verses if you're new to our church. I'm going to pray. I'm going to tell a couple stories, and then we're going to land back into what we're talking about today, about how we have the ability to stay in God's promised land once he gets us there. Yes. Are you with me today? Yes. By the way, it's okay to talk back to me? Yes. A couple amens don't scare me. <laughs> I love a good amen. I love a good go ahead. There's something about vocalizing your faith that kind of charges an atmosphere. And so if the person next to you is talking, they're not obnoxious. They're trying to help me out. <laughs> Are you with me? Awesome. Joshua chapter 9. Let's start reading in verse 6. This is, again, after all that I just mentioned. And in chapter, uh, chapter 6, uh, uh, verse 6, chapter 9, it says, uh, it says this. Uh, I'm sorry. Verse 3 is what I meant to say. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard all the things that Joshua did to Jericho and Ai, they actually worked craftily. And they, uh, they pretended to be ambassadors. They, they came and took old sacks of their donkeys, old wineskins, torn, mended, old patches, old sandals on their feet, old garments. They actually got old bread that was moldy, dry, and, and nasty. And they went into Joshua at the camp of Gilgal. They said to them, hey, we've come here from a far, far country. Now make a covenant with us. Then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you dwell among us, so how can we make sure that you know, we can make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, we are your servants. Joshua said, who are you? Where do you come from? And so they basically go on over the next few verses to say, look, we had brand new clothes on when we started traveling here. We heard about how great your God is like everybody else did in this land, but we were the only ones that wanted to actually come and give our lives to God. Everybody else wants to fight against God. We want to surrender. And so they said, look, we walked from a far land our sandals were brand new. Our Amazon Prime Whole Foods uh, bread was fresh. It was just out of the oven. Now it's moldy and rotten. We've been traveling for days, weeks to get here. And so it goes on. It says that they believed them. They made a treaty with who should have been an enemy. And verse 14 is really the, the, the kingpin verse here. It says, then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, the bread, and they did not ask, they did not ask counsel from the Lord. Did not ask counsel from the Lord. But they made peace with people that probably should have become enemies, made a covenant with them, and let them live. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them. So it goes on. Three days later, they find out that these guys, not only are they not far away, they're actually probably their closest neighbors. But they made a covenant, so they couldn't go back on it. So they're like, all right, we'll make them servants. So what happened was, there was five other kings that heard how the Gibeonites made a treaty with God's people Israel and so they were furious they're like how dare them make a treaty with these Hebrews so all five kings formed an alliance and they came to destroy the Gibeonites Gibeonites are like hey they're like Joshua help us we're, we're dead we tried to to try to come under your umbrella would you please protect us and let's begin reading what happens after that in chapter 10 verse 7 come on just just a few more verses seven more verses so joshua ascended from gilgal when he heard that the people were were in trouble with him with the mighty men of valor the lord said to joshua 
Hey, don't be, don't be scared. Don't fear them. I've delivered all five of these kings into your hands. Not a man among them shall stand before you. Joshua then came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from where they were. So when they had came, there was, there was a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased all these enemies along the road that goes to Beth Horon, and struck them down as far as that word and that word. Hardest part about being a pastor right there. And it goes on, it says, and they died. There was actually more people that died in the hellstorm that God sent from heaven than the children of Israel killed with the sword. Then Joshua, this is, the, this is kind of the big part here. Joshua then spoke to the Lord in the middle of the day when the Lord delivered the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said this in the sight of everybody. Son, stand still over Gibeon. And moon in the valley of... So, the sun stood still, the moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies. They didn't hasten to go down for about a whole day. It was an extra basically 24 hours added because of his prayer. And there has not been a day like that before it or after it that the Lord heeded the voice of a man in such a way. For the Lord fought for Israel. I want to talk to you today about staying, staying in your sweet spot. God, I just thank you for the next 25 minutes that you would come in this room in an awesome way. I pray for those of you that are, that those that are close to you today, that you would refresh them, that you would feed them, encourage them. I pray those that feel far from you today, that you'd meet them where they're at. Show them how much you love them. We pray that today would be awesome, be great, great in your presence, and we just thank you for what you're doing in the Los Angeles Lakers. Keep doing it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Come on, someone said Amen. Hey, I got to make a point. The Lakers were awful before I moved here. I've been praying for them every week. Some are like, please start praying for my baseball team. Come on. I'll do it. I'll, I'll do it. I'm, I'm so excited. Uh, I was thinking uh, this week, I was praying for you guys, and God kind of gave me this thought as I was putting this, you know, thought together that God was speaking to me. And I had this picture, you know, people ask me a lot of times, what do you miss the most about Idaho besides the people? And I uh, lived in Idaho for 17 years, for those of you that didn't know that. And I'll be really honest, the thing I missed the most besides the people was uh, I missed going to lakes. Uh, we actually were fortunate. We bought a boat, a wake surf boat. Anybody ever wake, wake surf? Wake surf? Who's wake boarded? Any wake boarders? Who's water skied? Come on, where's the water skiers at? Everyone's water skied. Uh, it's kind of like that. It's like the new version of water skiing. It's essentially, uh, it's kind of like skateboarding behind a boat. Your feet are not tied into bindings, and I uh, loved it. It was one of my favorite things. I am maybe the worst surfer in Orange County. And I want to clarify that our surf club does not involve the ocean. This for some of you parents, like, I can't send my kids to surf club. It's, oh, keep going. Um, but I'm a, I'm a terrible surfer. I'm trying to get better at it. But I was actually pretty good at wake surfing behind a boat. And uh, God can't give me this picture about wake surfing. And I don't know about, about you, but I love, there's something about being on a boat that's just awesome. Yeah. Anybody love boats? Fresh air on your face. It's like life is better on boats. People say the best day of your life is the day that you buy a boat, and the next day, best day of your, your life is the day you sell your boat. <laughs> they say that boats are a hole in the water, come on, <laughs> that you throw your money into. And uh, I'll remember, I remember going out many times. I would teach people how to, how to, how to um, wake surf and tube and all these fun activities. But there's something about being on the water that's awesome. Something about being on a lake, clear, clean air, blue skies, pine trees and crystal clear water it's just so it's so beautiful and being in the water i love any water people in the room i love water 
I moved here so I could swim on Christmas. Come on. And I love, I love water. I love being in the water. And there's something amazing about being in the water. But man, I'm telling you, getting behind a boat when you're on a board, and what happened is, is the boat, when you wake surf, you hold a rope, and the boat pulls you up with the rope. And the moment you stand up, as soon as you get in the wave, you can actually let go of the rope. I'm not sure if you've seen this before. But you literally, you're balancing in the inertia of the wave that if you want to accelerate, if you're falling out of the wave, you shift weight over your front foot. If you have to slow down because you're getting ready to run into the boat, it's a scary thing that happens, you actually put weight over your back foot. Now, before you get bored and go, Mark, what does this have to do with me? I haven't, I haven't been on a lake or a boat in my whole life. <laughs> it's a long time. What does that have to do with me, man? I want you to know there's something powerful about shifting your weight. I believe that this story is so awesome. It talks about two paradigms of these people that shifted their weight. One area they shifted their weight in, and it actually led to failure. And it led them to making friends with people that should have been enemies. Now, before you get all righteous and justice-oriented, and you go, how could God do such a thing? I think we do this all the time. I think that we make friendships with people that are supposed to be enemies all the time. I think we do things like, man, everyone in my family is a drug addict. I guess I'm, I'm going to be a drug addict too. And we make alliances with things that we should declare war on. Everyone in my family has anger issues. I'm going to have anger issues too. That's just the way I am. That's the way I was born. I'm, I was bred into a family that people lied and cheated and man, snuck around and had affairs and did this and did that. I think too often... We actually are making alliances with things that we're supposed to declare war on. And the biggest reason why often is because we shift our weight too far forward in the sense that we're not talking to God about the areas that he wants us to consult him. I believe that most of the problems I look back in my life, my mistakes, it's when I shifted my weight too far forward and I didn't involve God at all. Or I shifted my weight too far backwards that I was so spiritual that I had no practical application. Can anybody relate to this? It's like, well, I, I didn't get a job because I didn't apply for a job. Tricky. Or I did a 40-day prayer and fasting, but I didn't fill out one resume. It's like, come on, somebody. There's got to be. The Lord's going to bring in my Boaz. Then get your curlers out of your hair. Come on. Get out in the public, meet somebody, paint the barn, let's go. I think too many people, they're waiting for God to do what he's waiting for you to do. So these guys in the story we read here is that the Gibeonites, they actually make a treaty with God's people. They make a treaty. And they said they deceived them. And this is what I've learned is that when we don't pray about big decisions in life, it's very easy to be misled. I'm telling you right now, what I've learned a lot, I'm not the smartest guy, I'm not the best looking, I'm close, can I get an amen? <laughs> kidding, kidding, humble though too. I'll be honest with you though, I do know this, that some of my greatest moments of life is when I actually consulted God's counsel before I made a life-altering decision. I actually tell people all the time, I say, man, I think that the, 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 the number one way to have, to have order in your life is it says in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, it says to trust in the Lord with all your heart. To lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him. It says that God will direct. He will. Acknowledge him. Acknowledge. Hey, God, I know you're there. I know you're listening. I know you care. Jesus, I know you love me. Acknowledge him. You're like, Mark, I don't have five kings barreling down a mountain range to take me out. And I would actually, I would push back and say, I think we all have kings coming after us. We have little kings. 
Uh, maybe the five kings don't have the funny names that we just read about here. But I think there's modern day kings that try to push us out of the sweet spot of God's will. There's kings like, little kings like called, uh, the first one I, I wrote down is, is, the, is, the, is the first little king that will push you out of the sweet spot called discouragement. Well, I prayed and it didn't happen the way that I wanted it to happen. So I'm going to stop believing altogether. I actually, I went to church one time. I actually raised my hand at an altar call. And you know what? I, I voted for Pedro. My wildest dreams didn't come true. My life didn't radically change in 15 minutes. I know I spent 30 years digging this hole, but I expected God to get me out of it in one moment. So what happens is the first king that comes into your life is you go, well, I just feel discouraged. And this king comes into your life trying to discourage every area of your life. Because I think the devil knows that when we start agreeing with what he says about us, we can talk ourselves out of victory. I think that's one of the primary reasons why God said march around Jericho for seven days quiet. Because if you would have started talking, you'd have been like, what are we doing? Why aren't we building ladders and battering ramps? Why are we marching around with the ark and trumpets? Why does Sister Bertha have her shofar? What are we doing right now? I think God said, hey, guys, you'll have victory in Jericho. You just got to do one thing. Stay quiet. I don't want you to talk yourself out of what I want to do. Discouragement will hit you in such a way that you'll start going, man, maybe we can't. Maybe we did make a mistake. Maybe we shouldn't have made this treaty. Maybe God's favor has left us. Maybe we deserve these five kings to run into this valley and kill all of us. Maybe I deserve for bad things to happen to me. I'm going to mess with someone's death. Theologically, I want you to know, whenever you think, man, well, I, deserve, I did something stupid, God is spanking me right now. I want you to know that we don't serve a God that does weird things to punish you. Well, I, I yelled at the police officer, so that's why. That's why my flat tire happened. Good. I, I deserve that, God. And then my check engine light, I, good, good touch, God. I deserve that, too. Didn't go to church on Sunday. Oh, man, I can see why. Stock dropped a little bit. Okay, I see, God, I see. I, I understand. I'm listening. We associate bad happenings because we think that God is bad. But if God was to repay evil for evil, he would be like us. But he's not a man that he should lie. And he never steps down to your level to treat you the way that you deserve to be treated. It's a fundamental truth. God doesn't act like a four-year-old to reach a four-year-old. Love this idea that these Gibeonites actually, uh, there's ki five kings. The first one I think is discouragement. The next one I think is, is called deception. And I think it's really easy in life to make good-hearted decisions that lead you to the wrong place. Because one man said, deception's like bad breath. You're always the last one to know about it. I was deceived, and I didn't know it. These guys said they were from a far nation, but they lived next door. And they made an alliance with someone they should have made war with. And I think this is, what the, this is what I believe these kings try to do, is they try to deceive us into tolerating things that Jesus died for on the cross. That's what deception does. Deception goes, you're always going to be like this. You can't change. You were born like that. You're, you're going to always be bent towards that. You're never going to have victory in this area. You're always going to be broke. You're always going to make bad decisions. You're always going to be, you're always going to be low integrity. You're never going to break free from anger and alcohol abuse and popping pills. Everyone in your family is this way. I want you to know that's a king called deception. And he comes to try to talk you into the garbage that the devil put on your front yard that Jesus paid in full to get picked up. 
I've never met anybody that had a garbage truck come into their yard, dump off the trash in the front yard, and watch someone walk outside and go, oh, it's in my yard. It must be my trash. I guess I got trash in my life. I, I want someone to, I'm, I hope I'm not the only weird one in the room. But if there's trash droves in my yard, just because it's in my yard does not mean it's. And what I would do in that situation, if I saw him driving off, you better believe I'm running down the street in my robe with my sandals on. Come on. My Chuck Norris sandals. And I'm going to run down the road, and I'm going to get this guy's attention and say, hey, sir, I don't know. There must have been a mistake because even though it's in my yard, that does not belong to me. It does not belong to you. It belongs in the trash bin or the back of your truck. It does not belong in my life. And I believe there's a lot of garbage that even thoughts that come through our heads every day that we think because it's in my mind, it's my thought. Friend, that's deception. Deception goes, look, if you have angry thoughts, you must be an angry person. I want you to know, look, I, I was born angry, but I was born again with the mind of Christ. Galatians 2, come on, what's it saying? 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Jesus. It's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. The life that I live in the natural life, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Saying sometimes your feelings have to follow your faith, not the opposite. Well, I'll do it when I feel it. Then good luck getting anywhere in life. All, everyone in the room knows if you live solely by your feelings, none of us would have graduated school. I just didn't feel like going to school today, Mom. Okay, stay home. Mark, uh, your shift started an hour ago. We noticed you're not here. Yeah, I didn't feel like coming. Just felt like staying. Well, I was middle of an Xbox game. And, uh, you know, it's getting it was Battle Royale. I had to get into it. I was in the middle of, like, the second season of Netflix show. I'm like, look, I'm going to go to work after this next season. You can't, listen, we, we can't just go, well, I felt, I felt like giving in to this. It's like, look, disciple comes from the same root word in the Greek, discipline. It's the idea that there's a lot of things that come through my head. Not every weed in my yard belongs to me. Not every piece of trash that blows onto my property is, oh, my gosh, my, my trash. We don't do that with anything, so why do we do it with our mind? There's deceptive kings that go, you know, you deserve this. You're a bad person. You deserve bad things to happen to you. And I want you to know today, I fundamentally believe that there's little kings called discouragement, deception, defeat. How about destruction? How about depression? How about this one, death? Why is it that death has this somber ability to go, well, when things die, when relationships die, when friendships die, when a circumstance dies, when a human being dies, that must be an indicator that God's not for us. But I want to encourage you today that regardless of what king, little king, is taunting you, there is a bigger king. And this king actually comes and says, look, if you'll acknowledge me and trust me. And here's what I believe. Trust is actually spelt P-R-A-Y-E-R. I actually believe a lot about who you trust in and what you trust in by what you talk to and what you do when you're stressed out. We know who our God is. It's easy to say I'm a Christian man when everything's going well. But what do you do in difficult moments of life? What do you do when you have five kings barreling down the mountains coming after you? I believe that we have to do two things that they, they did. The first thing that they had to learn is they didn't do it the first time, but they got it right the second time is they had to make a decision, number one, that they are going to consult God in every, his counsel in every area. I believe that big decisions need a big God. 
I believe life-altering moments need the God that gave us life. I always tell people that when I make a big decision, I'm not talking about praying over your dessert. I'm not talking about that. Okay, key lime or cheesecake? Come on, we know. Come on, key lime. Um, if we're in a position, though, we're making a decision, hey, where do we send our kid to school, man? Do we, do we relocate? Do we, do, we, do, we get, do we separate? Do we get divorced? Do we call it quits? Do we file bankruptcy? Do we reinvest? Do we take this job opportunity? I believe that large decisions in life need to be, need to be predicated upon acknowledging him. It says if I acknowledge him, he'll direct my steps. I can't tell you how many people get off track out of the sweet spot. And when you're on a wakeboard, it's so crazy because you're in a sweet spot. It's the funnest thing ever. It's tiring because you're like doing squats the whole time. And you start getting exhausted, but it's the funnest thing. You keep doing it even though it's it's tiring. It's kind of like the will of God. People think the will of God is like no burden. No, no exhaust. Wakes, mountain bike riding, it's exhilarating. Going uphill, exhausting. But I've learned this, Bache, that the downhills make the uphills worthwhile. And many people are like, well, if we're not ever going to go downhill, I'm not going to do it at all. I've learned this. To go downhill, at times you have to be willing to pedal up. And there's a sweet spot, like like on the wake surfboard, that you find this, I'm having a good time, but if if I start getting out of the sweet spot, it's usually because I'm not acknowledging him in an area of my life. So what do you do to acknowledge God? This is what I, I always tell people this. I think Pastor Ken probably taught me most of this, or all of this. I'll just give him credit for everything. <laughs> Take back a little credit later if I need to. <laughs> Is uh, I believe that he, you know, the, the four Ps, if you're taking notes, you these are free. I believe that when you're making a decision in life, especially a life-altering decision, I encourage you to pray first, not last. I feel like most Christians in America, if we're being honest, most people pray. I mean, I didn't believe in God until I was 18. You better believe every time I was on my way to the principal's office, I was a man of God. I turned into a, come on, tongue-talking, Shandai, like Jesus, do what you can, should have bought a Kia, would have bought a Hyundai. Come on, like, praying. When I was on the way to the principal's office, I was, man, I was faith-filled. But it's crazy that, like, you know, it was my last resort. It wasn't my first choice. And I want to encourage you today, like, Mark, how do we get things back on the train tracks? How, I feel like we've kind of drifted out of the sweet spot. I feel like we're living more for our career than our call. I feel like I'm making a paycheck, but I'm not making a difference. I feel like I'm getting through life, but I'm not living for heaven. What do you do? I think the first thing you do is is, is step one. God, I acknowledge that you're the only one that knows what I'm made to do in life. And when you acknowledge him, when you're praying about big decisions, is you pray first, not last. Second thing I do is if you're making a big decision, life-altering, I encourage you to talk to your parents. Now, before some of you are like, I don't have parents anymore. I think everyone in this room has someone spiritually that's like a spiritual mom or a spiritual dad. I think most of our church would report to Johnny and Vicky. They are just like everyone's mom and dad. Love these so, so much. But who are the people like, like as parents in your life that you're like, you know what? We're, we're talking about filing for divorce. We're talking about taking that job in Nevada because there's no tax and the houses are 20 bucks thinking about moving to Texas with everybody else. I, I think, you know, at times we, we, we're getting ready to make a big decision and we don't even, we don't even, we pray about it, but we don't consult. The Bible says in the multitude of counselors, there's safety. 
So let's say it the opposite way and apply it to Americans. In the absence of counselors, there's danger. With no advice, you're living dangerously. And so I'd encourage you, the second P is to talk to maybe some, some parents in the faith. Third one I would say, this is going to sound a little self-serving, but before you judge me, just go with me for a second. I think it's, I think it's important to make big decisions with pastors. And I think there's two extremes in the body of Christ. There's one extreme that's turned people off, that pastors are deities. That somehow they are perfect people with no problems, completely immune to anything that life has to throw at them. I want you to know that pastors have problems like anybody else. Challenges, come on. We put our pants on, two legs, come on, just like all of you. Tough crowd. But there are, is extreme that we worship people in ministry? Or there's the other extreme, which I feel like you're, most people are usually one of these two extremes. They think too highly probably and they worship people. Or the other extreme is there's no honor at all and it's like, we don't need a pastor. Same God that speaks to them speaks to me. What's so special about them? Why do I need a church? I know Jesus. Well, last time I checked, he's come back for a bride called the church. Not Rambo Christians that float from conference to conference that have no home church. Going to get quiet in here for a second. I love Jesus, but I hate the church. Well, that's like saying that you love me, but you don't like my wife. I'm going to come on. Can I push back just for a second? If you really love me, you'll actually learn to love my wife. But if you're like, Mark, I'm in love with you, which is getting weird real fast. I'm weirding myself out talking to I love you, but man, that Rochelle, I just... The air is coming out of my morale right now. I'm getting angry thinking about this scenario. I love my wife. I wife this woman. Come on. This is my bride. This is my, this is my, I'm living my life. I'm laying my life down for my wife. And I think many people, they, because they had a bad experience with maybe the hyper spiritual church, that the pastors worship and the church is, is deity. That they, they go the other one. They say, I don't need any community. I don't need any pastors, leaders, small groups. It's me, Jesus, and my Bible. I'm isolated. Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, said that he who seeks isolation uh, seeks his own desires. You know the first law in the satanic Bible? I know it. It's to do whatever you feel like doing that you want. You know the first law of the satanic cult is to live solely for you and your own desires all the time. So think about this. Jesus, you want to find your life? Lose it. You want to go up? Go down. You want to be the best? Be the servant. And the, the satanic principle is yeah, you're the only one that matters. Make, even if it hurts other people, make yourself happy. So again, are you still with me today? Like I shot a few people right there. Come on, we'll come back. I, uh, I, I saw this, that, that the Gibeonites, they actually, they, they pray, but the, here's the four piece I got to finish, is you have pastors, and I, I believe this, if there's two extremes, worship, but no honor, and I think this, if there was no need for people in ministry and churches and pastors, God wasted a lot of ink in the New Testament in the pastoral epistles, talking about why it's good to have shepherds in your life. James would say, if you're sick, call for the elders of the church. Have them pray over you. And it says, the, and, the, and the prayer will actually save the sick. So what are you saying? I think that if you don't have a pastor, you're leading towards disaster. That's the phrase. I think that having someone, and by the way, I'm not saying this because I want more meetings. Lord knows. 
I love meeting with you guys, but I don't want to live for meetings. I want you to know this is not a self-serving thing. I just think that you got to have spiritual leaders in your life that you go, hey, we're thinking about relocating because this job pays more. And what I would tell you is I'd say, always do this. When you meet with a spiritual leader, always, if you're going to take the time to meet with them and they're taking the time to meet with you, come with an open agenda. If your mind's made up, you're not asking for counsel. You're asking for a blessing. So what I've learned is, is to walk in those meetings, because what happens, and again, I've been doing this for 18 years, but my, my in-laws have been doing it for like 100, and their, their parents for 100, and there's like a lot of years. And what I've seen in my, my limited experience is when you go into a meeting like that, and you're like, we have our mind made up, we're moving to Arizona, and we're going to take this job, it doesn't matter. And here's my first question. Is there a church that your family can thrive in? Because I think money without God makes wealthier devils. Well, I would send my kids to like that Bible leadership internship, but man, my kids got to go get a degree. They got to get a job. They got to make money. Education without Jesus makes more educated devils. I think that the most important thing we can do for our family is put God first. Now, it's quiet in the Presbyterian church for a second. That's all right. Um, but I'm going to pray. If I can get a Pentecostal, amen, come on, give me a Baptist head nod. Give me a Presbyterian eyebrow raise. Come on. Give me a Latter-day Saint wave. Come on, give me something this morning. Telling you that God is the only one that when we actually acknowledge him, he can direct our steps. And here's the fourth P. Philippians says to be anxious about nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request, whatever you're requesting, should I take this job? Should we separate? Should we get back together? Should I date him? Is he the devil? Is she, come on, is she Jezebel? Pray about everything. But it says this, and it says, and the peace of God that transcends your understanding will guard your heart. The peace will guard your heart. I've learned, you know, the Greek word for, for uh, guard is the, is the word we get umpire from. It's just like baseball. It dictates what's in in a strike and what's out in as a ball. It's dictating what's in the will of God and what's out. And I've learned in my own life, there's been moments that I'm like, man, this could, this could do well lucratively, or this could be a good relational decision, or this could be a good idea. But I've learned if I pray about it, I talk to my parents, my pastors. I've had times that all three were lined up, but I had zero peace. I want to encourage you to don't ever ignore God's peace. I remember talking with a family member who I remember talking to graciously and kind of started this relationship a little bit dysfunctional. And uh, Stace could come on with the keys. I'm almost finished. And I remember it started off kind of dysfunctional. I just said, hey, are you sure you want to, you know, you're not married yet. You're not engaged yet. Are you sure? This is where you want to land. And he's like, oh, yeah, 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 I'm sure, I'm sure. But I could tell there was no confidence, conviction in his voice. But he was almost more scared to be alone than he was about getting into the wrong relationship. And never, never forget, you know, four years later, they end up getting divorced. And he told me, the first thing he said when he told me they got divorced, he said, Mark, you said it in the nicest way I've ever heard anyone say anything like this. He said, but basically you asked me, are you sure this is what God has for you? He said, Mark, I knew inside of me, I heard a voice. It was so clear. He said, this is not what you're supposed to do. He said, I had zero peace. But you know what I did is I just hoped for the best. He goes, looking back, I wish I would have listened to that peace. I believe that God's confirmation that you're in the right space or place is there's just the peace. I can't explain it. You can't, you can't purchase peace you can't earn it you can't do enough calisthenics or run enough miles you you can't exercise your way into his peace you can't again it's just it's like it's not for sale it's like 
there's something about doing what God made you to do, where he asked you to do it, with the people he called you to do it with, that creates this peace. Some of you, I just feel like this is a word for some. Some of you, you have a hard time sleeping at night because of the absence of his peace. And I feel like the Lord would just lovingly say today, get, come on, be flexible today. And I'll actually position your life and your family and your marriage and your business and everything. I'll put it back on the tracks. And your sleep will be sweet. I'll give you peace. There's not only people that acknowledge God, consult the counsel of God for everything. But I believe the second thing that actually keeps the weight distributed properly so that you stay in the sweet spot is actually the second thing, that, which we'll call today, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. I believe that, that Joshua teaches us we stay in the promised land by calling on God for great things. Calling on God for great things. I'll be really honest. I think most of us don't believe for much. And I love that, that Joshua, he has the audacity with this entire church watching him to say, Hey, God, I'm not just asking for victory today. Here's the deal. The sun is getting ready to go down. If the sun goes down, it gets dark. Our enemies have time to regroup and they gain advantage. We don't need you to do everything for us necessarily. We just need you to prolong the day. Would you cause the sun to stay there and the moon to stay over there? And he prays an audacious prayer. I know you start talking about praying big prayers in church, and it's always funny. Religious people always get all, like, weirded out. Like, no, you have to be reverent. You got to just whisper, like, reverentially. Like, don't say anything that might upset God. And just be very reverential. And I get that when you've been, when you've been trained in maybe a very ritualistic uh, methodology of Christianity. But I want you to the Bible is very clear. It says in Hebrews 4, it says that we boldly, or Hebrews, I think it's 12.4. It says that we boldly come to the throne of grace. It's crazy. Jesus says in Mark 11, he says, hey, if there's a mountain in front of you, you speak to that mountain, and you command that turkey to be thrown into the sea. And when you pray it, believe that you have it. And what you believe in prayer in my name, you will have. It's crazy. We're like, no, we got to pray a little mile, a little, little like, like Bud Light prayers. The light version of the prayer. I want the, I want the, the Diet Coke prayer. And I want you to know today, I'm, I'm encouraging. I think that we need to have great faith. Come on, can I get an amen in here? I think that he had the audacity to say, you know what? Son, stand still. Well, it was one time. How about Elijah? Stop raining. It says he was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain in the land for three years, six months. He prayed again. Hey, rain, come on back. And it rained again. We see that Elijah and Joshua had the power through, through bold prayers to change the atmosphere. You know what changes the atmosphere of your life? I believe praying to God big prayers. I don't think God is threatened by your big prayers. And let me go to the skeptic in the room just for a minute. Do you know what, do you know what happens to you when you pray a big prayer and it doesn't happen? You end up where you currently are in your lack of faith. Worst case scenario is you end up where you currently are. Which I think that's so funny to me about like even atheism, which I have a lot of atheist friends. I always tell them like, dude, you got way more faith than me. Way more. Because if, if I'm wrong, I'm going to live like a morally sound life. I'm going to be staying married to my wife. I'm going to obey the laws, pay taxes. I'm going to be a good neighbor. I'm going to live a good life. And if you're right, I die. I'm dead forever. I'm buried in the dust. Fine. 
whatever, you're right. But I live a good life. If you're wrong, you got way more faith than me. Because you're not just risking this life, you're risking eternity. So I think you got way more faith than I have personally. So I would go as far to say, I think if we're going to pray, you pray a big prayer, God heal, God move. What if you pray for 100 people and only one gets healed? Is the one worth it? What about the 99 that don't get healed? What if their feelings get hurt? I don't think they're going to hurt their feelings. I think the 99 are going to go, did you hear about that guy that got healed? Did you hear how one of us got out of the wheelchair? Did you hear about that? My friend got me these good Laker tickets the other day. I didn't buy them, so don't judge me. But this pastor friend of mine got me these really good Laker tickets, and um, we're sitting there, and this guy traveled with a lot of these uh, big ministries, healing ministries. And one of the guys he sat under, he actually led the, the music at these, these stadium events. He said, Mark, I was asking, I love talking to these guys about the history of the church. He said the 70s and the 80s, this was just like, he said it was the most amazing meetings I've ever been in. He said the presence of God was so strong that you couldn't even stand up. He said, yeah, I remember one meeting, Mark, there was four paralyzed people in the room, and three of them got out. It was five paralyzed people, and three of them got out of their wheelchairs and started walking. No one even prayed for him. He said one guy in the room hadn't walked in 12 years. He was shot in the spine. He, he, he couldn't walk. He, he literally was paralyzed. I don't know what, how, what level of paralysis. He just said he got shot in the spine. He couldn't walk for 12 years. He was fully in a, in a, in a wheelchair. And during the service, he said... He said, honestly, Mark, it was, it was uncomfortable. He said, because the guy started, like, shouting, which made, made a scene, which I've learned that miracles get messy. Started making a scene like, ah, ah. Like, What's going on? He's got a demon possessed. No, he's getting feeling back. And then he, like, he actually tried to stand. He said, someone help me. And he grabbed someone's hand, and he fell flat on his face. And then they, he's like, pick me up. Feel something. And they picked this guy up. And he, like, literally, they start, like, trying to walk with him, falls on the ground again. He's, this, my friend is leading the music at the service. He's like, please make it stop, make it stop. Like, this is so uncomfortable. He said the guy fell four or five times. But then all of a sudden, he started getting strength in his legs. And in front of a stadium full of people, he started walking after 13 years of paralysis. That's impossible. Well, Read your, read your church history. I dare you to study about John G. Lake that made, that made uh, Spokane, Washington one of the healthiest cities in the world. Miracles were happening. My grandpa got saved at the baseball stadium in Chicago, which reveals my level of fandom with baseball that I don't know the name of the stadium. <laughs> Is it Wrigley or? Wrigley Field, thank you. You have my back, Trent, I saw that. Wrigley Field. He thought it was a baseball game. He was an immigrant from Ireland. He would actually show up. He had his pipe. He was in the military. He was a boxer. That's where I get my... We'll keep going. <laughs> and he gets a ticket to go into the stadium. And he walks in, and he's like, this isn't a baseball game, but it was a full stadium. And there's a little five foot two or five foot three preacher. Fiery little dude. And he was like preaching. And it was crazy. They started bringing in people on stretchers. And even ambulance were bringing in, like, like these people that are paramedics, bringing people in stretchers and wheelchairs that they couldn't do anything more for at the hospitals. And this guy, he said, was literally walking. He said, I've never been at a church like this, my, my, a Christianity like this my whole life. He said the guy was walking around, and he had, like, he would, like, literally say, you live at 147788, 
West North Street, right? He's like, and he was saying addresses of people. And he's like, you know, your grandmother was a witch. God's setting you free from that darkness right now. You can look up old videos. William Branham, look him up. He went a little crazy at the end of his life. But I'm telling you that in the heyday of that guy's ministry, miracles were happening all the time. My grandpa pointed at the sickest person he could find in the stadium. He said, God, if you are real, this isn't a big hoax. He said, that lady there, she was degenerate. She had like arms that were in like this, legs were in like this. She weighed like 80 pounds. She was green. The, the paramedics said they couldn't do anything for this lady. She was on death's doorstep. And my grandpa pointed at her, which was far away from him. And he said, if you're real, send that little guy over to that lady and heal her and I'll serve you the rest of my life. He said about 45 seconds after he prayed that prayer, he walked off the stage, walked through the crowd to the stretcher, grabbed her by the hand. And he said in front of the entire stadium, this, this lady's arm broke loose. Leg broke loose. He actually put her foot off the stretcher, stood up. Started walking with him with his hand. He said the coloring came back into her flesh. Started walking, then started jogging. Let go of her hand, and then started running around the stadium. And you watch an entire stadium of people. Like, Mark, I'm introverted. I'm, cons- I'm just, I'm very reserved. Human. You would lose... And I'm not saying this to just tell history. I'm telling you this because I'm, I'm, I'm trying to warn you of our future. There will be a day that miracles begin to break out. They're already happening on, on a level. But I believe my grandma, I'll never forget, I had her come preach at our church when she was like in her 90s. She preached at our youth ministry. It was the coolest thing ever. It's on, it's on TV. It's, I don't know where it's at. It's on, it's on YouTube. TV. Yeah, it's on TV. It's Fox News. Uh, <laughs> no. I, uh... She spoke, and she was like 90 years old at our youth ministry, and the music was loud, like today. By the way, if, you, if this is loud for you, we have earplugs for, in the sound booth. There's earplugs, and if it's really loud, just sit in the middle. It's not as loud in the middle, I guess. But it was loud. And I'm like, Grandma, we'll go in after the music. It's too loud. She looked at me. She's like this tall. She said, Son, my grandma raised me on Azusa Street. I was raised in revival meetings. We're going in now. I said, Okay, Grandma. We walked in. My grandma was mentored by Amy Simple McPherson. Do your church history. This lady had such a miracle ministry in Los Angeles, California, that they decorated Angeles Temple, is where my grandparents got married, where I proposed to Rochelle. They decorated a 5,500-seat auditorium with stretchers and wheelchairs on the walls of the people that got healed in their meetings. The meetings were so innovative and creative that producers and actors and entertainers from Hollywood were sitting in the meetings. I, I sat with my grandma and all her friends that were there when they told stories about 5,500 people standing room only, and they didn't have technology that was great back then. They had a loudspeaker on the outside of the building that shot into Echo Park. 20,000, 25,000 people sitting in the park to hear, not see, to hear what God was doing inside of the building. I want to remind you, this, half, this is not a farce. This is not fairy pot, Harry Potter. This is, not, this is not Twinkle or Twilight, the Starvation Olympics, or the Hunger Games. Are you hearing me? This is history that God, Jesus people movement. Thousands of people getting saved in Southern California. No one even telling about Jesus. Jesus revealing himself to people. You got the birth of, of Calvary Chapel, the birth of the vineyard. You got, you got Crystal Cathedral. I could roster off things that God has done in this land. 
And it's not because he wants us to study history and cry. It's because he wants us to build our faith and believe. We will be a church. Come on. It's going to pray big prayers. God, you can do anything. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Have a great week.